Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 223, questions 8. When we were last together, I asked if you had any questions about Alexius and the Crusades, and you did. Today we'll go through your questions and round out our understanding of the state of Byzantium in 1118 AD. I will look at specific questions one at a time, but if I had to try and schmush all your questions into one, it would be, what is the state of the Byzantine economy and army at the end of Alexius's reign? The bad news is, obviously, in what the empire has lost. This includes Antioch and Cilicia, good farming country with healthy tax revenue, the Armenian borderlands full of tough recruits and important trading towns like Melitene, Theodosiopolis and Ani, the whole of the Anatolian plateau, Sparsely populated, yes, but still in possession of important cities, and of course it was a huge grazing zone where valuable herds and flocks lived. Byzantium had lost its major stud farms that had been providing the empire with its best horses for a millennium. Trebizond too, and the coast around it, was now semi-independent, open to Byzantine shipping but not necessarily sending much taxation home. Even the lands that Alexius had recovered were now exposed to raids from the Turks. The good news is that the west coast of Anatolia was one of the wealthiest and most populous parts of the empire, and it was now back in Roman hands. The Aegean was once more a Byzantine sea, safe and secure, and allowing trade to flow between all coordinates. More good news is that the Romans had held on to the Balkans throughout this troubling time. Greece and Thrace were also wealthy and populous, and though the rest of the region was less so, they had more than enough to pay for their own defence. What the East had lost was, to some extent, the Balkans' gain. Many people had fled Anatolia for Europe during the past half-century, and though this weakened the Roman element in the east, it strengthened it in the west. 
The wealthiest had bought up estates in Thrace and also kept a home in the capital. Constantinople experienced a building boom during this period, spreading over sectors of the city that had lain dormant since Yersinia Pestis came calling. The capital's population was swelling to well over 200,000 people, staggering Western visitors who had never seen a city of such size. In terms of imperial finances, a question that came up repeatedly was how much had the tax take shrunk from its pre-Manzikert levels. The historian we turn to for such guesstimates is Warren Treadgold. He says that by the end of Alexius's son's reign, where more land was retaken, the government might have been taking in as much as five-sixths of its pre-Manzikert revenue. Now, I think that is too generous an estimate, but to be fair to Professor Treadgold, there are reasons to support this view. One is that a lot of cash that was raised in the borderlands never reached the treasury. It stayed where it was to pay the local garrisons. For example, the governor at Melitine used to keep the trade duties from the city as his salary. Also, the mountains and the plateau were sparsely populated enough that they probably never produced much of a surplus in the first place. So Professor Treadgold might argue that it was only really the farms of Cilicia that would have made a serious dent in the palace's budget. In addition to this, there would also have been more revenue coming in from the remaining population. Why? Because the empire was enjoying a productivity boom. The population was growing and trade was increasing. In fact, across the whole of Europe, birth rates were surging. This is the part of the crusading story that I never got round to telling. The population of Western Europe had been expanding for some time. By one estimate, it had gone from 29 million in 800 AD to 36 million by the year 1000. But that growth was accelerating all the way to 44 million by 1100. Western Europe's heavier soils had held it back when techniques that worked in the lighter soil of the Mediterranean prevailed, but since the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, conditions had gradually improved. Horses had replaced oxen, better shoes and collars had increased the strength of the equine, and allied to heavier ploughs, the soil had been brought into use. Broader climactic conditions were favourable in this period too, and with the end of Viking, Magyar and Arab raiding, Western Europeans were on the march. So when Pope Urban made his plea, it was to a society who could afford to release its sons and daughters from their farms for a year without worrying that everyone would starve. Though Byzantium didn't benefit directly, from most of those innovations, they were far from immune to the good news. The population of the empire also grew throughout this period, and though this didn't compensate for the loss of all that eastern territory, it did help soften the blow. More people meant more land was brought into cultivation, and more produce was sold, thanks to increasing trade links with the Latins. The coast of Greece was the major beneficiary from the expansion of Venetian trading. 
Greek port cities were key in building the Italian trading network as it snaked down the Adriatic and on via Rhodes and Cyprus to Egypt. Corinth, Sparta and Thebes all grew significantly, providing new outlets for the crops and livestock of their farmers and the products of their urban industries, while the town of Almiros seems to have grown from almost nothing into a profitable port simply because of its position on the route to Constantinople. By the end of his reign, when Alexius's reforms to the coinage and taxation systems kicked in, the empire was in a good shape economically. I don't believe the government were taking in five-sixths of their pre-Manzicurt revenue, but there is plenty of evidence to suggest that they were doing fine. Alexius's son and grandson were both able to field decent armies and dole out generous diplomatic gifts for the next 50 years. But what kind of army are we talking about, you ask? Pre-Manzikert, the Romans could just about manage to fight on two fronts at once. There were enough troops in east and west to hold off at least moderate opponents at the same time. That level of flexibility was now gone. The empire could only deal with one problem at a time. If the army marched off on campaign, all it left behind were small city garrisons. This was a fairly normal scenario for most states but most states did not have as many active fronts as Byzantium. The navy too had gone into decline. The home fleet that patrolled the Sea of Marmara was maintained, but those that operated in the Aegean and Mediterranean were now shadows of their former selves. They were likely the first cuts to be made as budgets tightened, hence the need to outsource the defence of the Adriatic to the Venetians. So what kind of army did Byzantium now field? In structure, it wasn't very different from the armies that have been fielded ever since Belisarius's day. A mass of infantry providing a shield for the cavalry who actually win the battles. In Alexius's armies, foreign troops played a big role. The skirmishers were likely to be Pechenegs or Anatolian Turks, the heavier cavalry, Normans, or other Latins, while the Varangian guard kept watch over the emperor. But this wasn't so different to how the Roman army had always operated. Belisarius had recruited Huns, Vandals, and Goths. Nicephorus Phocus had used Armenians and Arabs. Basil II, Rus, and Bulgarians. What had changed since Manzikert was the recruitment process for native Byzantine cavalry. Between fighting the Turks and various civil wars, the Romans had essentially lost all of their native elite cavalry units. These were the theme units and the tachmata, who could trace their origins back to the legions of Diocletian and beyond. Now, to be clear, these men had not all been wiped out, but the loss of Anatolia had seen their barracks, their muster grounds, their supply networks, and their homes disappear. The Balkan armies were then badly mauled by Robert Giscard, to the point that Alexius didn't bother to reconstitute them. He simply reorganised them into ad hoc forces under new commanders. With all the traditional stratigoi gone, Alexius turned to his extended imperial family to lead his armies. 
as you know, he had requisitioned large estates to support the new imperial aristocracy, and he expected his male relatives to maintain a certain number of soldiers on these lands. But beyond those estates, we're not yet aware of any systematized way of recruiting Roman cavalrymen. We know that they existed, and many would have served in the garrisons which dotted the Balkans and the west coast of Anatolia. We know more about how foreign-born soldiers were looked after. For example, when Alexius defeated the Pechenegs in 1091, he found farms for the survivors near Thessalonica. Part of the deal was that these new lands would support a certain number of soldiers who the Pechenegs community would supply each year. This system sounds a bit like the old theme deal of land for service, but there was an important difference. The land was not always given to those groups as their property. The revenue, the rents and tax payments of the peasants who worked the farms, was granted to them for as long as they served loyally. Those rights could be revoked or reassigned at the whim of the emperor. This new system is known to us as pronoia, and academic debate continues about the extent of its use. Increasingly, though, the emperors would look to secure the service of foreign soldiers, ready-made troops for their armies, and doled out land to feed and supply them in between campaigns. Some have concluded from this meagre information that the Komnenoi relied entirely on foreign troops, but that isn't the case. The majority of soldiers in the Roman army remained native Romans, as they always had. The bulk of the infantry were now recruited in the Balkans. As we discussed in the narrative, the lands around Adrianople became prime recruiting ground for sturdy foot soldiers, and we know that native cavalry units were raised in both Thrace and Macedonia. We just don't know the specifics of how long-term recruitment was organised. The hiring of foreign troops was nothing new, and it suited emperors since they would get experienced soldiers who required little training, and these men were unlikely to instigate civil wars. By the end of Alexius's reign, this mixed Byzantine army was strong and disciplined enough to campaign in Anatolia and stand tall in the face of the steppe archers. But it lacked the sheer numbers required to cow the Turks and drive them off the plateau. Okay, let's get into your specific questions. Listener RY says, It seems like Alexius had so much gold and so many gifts to give away to the Crusaders and even to the surrendering Turks. Why didn't he just use that money to pay mercenaries or get the Empire's army into shape again? Good question, but in a way... The answer is in the question. Why didn't Alexius use the money he gave to the Crusaders to build up his own army? Because he needed that money to give to the Crusaders. This goes back to the question of how much assistance Alexius was expecting from the West. It's doubtful he ever imagined that 70,000 people would respond to the call. But when they did, he had no choice but to feed them and supply them with coin. This was self-preservation as much as generosity. If he didn't give the Latins Byzantine money to spend in his markets, then he knew 
they would take what they needed by force. Okay, I hear you say, that explains things for 1097, but why not then recruit a load more soldiers of his own? Well, because the Crusaders didn't stop coming. People were arriving at Constantinople even after the First Crusaders had left, and they were expecting a warm welcome. And rumours swirled that another armed pilgrimage would be organised. And sure enough, in 1101, those Latins came through the Balkans and had to be fed and paid en route. In a way, Alexius had to put all his plans on hold during that period. As much as the Latins had come to assist him, they were also like a plague of locusts that had to be carefully shepherded away from the most valuable crops, metaphorically speaking. It was only after 1101 that Alexius could begin planning to restore his own economy and army, which he did. Remember that his tax and coin reforms took a long time to take hold. It was a major undertaking to remove coins from circulation and replace them with new denominations that could gain wide acceptance. Building on that question, listener GTR asks if Alexius could have done more to rebuild the native Roman military. I think this gets into an issue we discussed in episode 200. Could Alexius have established some kind of reconquista army in Anatolia, one that would operate independently and begin putting daily pressure on the Turks? The problem here is the scarring suffered during the post-Manzikert chaos. First Votaniates and then Melisinos had used the troops left in Anatolia to try and seize the throne. And both had handed over fortresses to the Turks in order to gain their support. Under no circumstances was Alexius going to allow that to happen again. Byzantium would retain a central field army that would only operate when the emperor was present, for good or ill. I think Alexius did all he could with the resources at his disposal. It was for his offspring to work out if a better system of defence could be devised. Listener DT and D92 asked about the balance between mercenaries and native troops in the army and whether mercenaries were more expensive to hire. I think the term mercenary probably gets misunderstood in the Byzantine context, There are two types of foreign soldier. The ones who were literally mercenaries, who had just turned up for one campaign and then left, and those who lived and worked in Byzantium like any native Roman, but just happened to be of foreign origin. It's obviously impossible for me to tell you what the balance was at any particular moment, but coherent armies are not made up of genuine mercenaries. From all that we know, it seems likely that many men served in Byzantium for years or even decades before they went home or retired. Many Latins became trusted lieutenants for Alexius and remained loyal even when fighting their own kin. For people like the Pechenegs, it was probably impossible to be seen as truly Roman even after a couple of generations, 
and yet they were clearly Roman citizens who lived, served and died within the boundaries of the empire. As far as we know, these men were paid like all the other soldiers. A small annual payment to keep you solvent, and then a significant bonus if you actually served on campaign. True mercenaries might well be more expensive to hire, but they would only serve on campaign when money would have been saved up for that purpose. The most obvious mercenaries in Alexius's day were the troops provided by the Sultanate of Rum. As part of the various peace deals the two sides struck, the Turks would send several thousand riders to help fight Bohemond, say, and they were paid for their trouble and then sent home afterwards. Listener LW and Listener SB ask about Roman infantry and cavalry and whether Latin troops now outclassed them. It is true to say that the Crusader knights made a strong impression on the Byzantines. Anna is clear that for all their negative attributes, the Latins were tremendous warriors. But context here is important. The elite Latin knights came from a militarized society which prized martial virtues above most others. Men would acquire wealth and status through violent acquisition. This bred a tough, resourceful, relentless character. By contrast, most Byzantine elite males gained wealth and status through imperial service or a career in the church. They could ride a horse and wield a sword, but they were not bred in the same ruthless world. So yes, people at the time on both sides saw the contrast and commented on it. But just a century earlier, Nicephorus Phocas and John Zimiskees would have stood toe-to-toe with Bohemond and his ilk. It's just that the context of the struggle with the Arabs had passed, and with it that same violent borderlands culture. The Turkic victories in Anatolia had come so quickly that no comparable generation of Byzantines had yet grown up to share that hyper-militarized way of being. So yes, the Latins were currently outclassing the Byzantines on the battlefield, but it's not a linear progression. It's just one of current circumstances. And remember that the Crusades were a coalition army made up of some of the best soldiers from across Western Europe. It's unfair to compare a whole continent to just the Byzantine army. One-on-one, the Romans were still a match for anyone, as we saw when the Normans were twice defeated in the Balkans. It's also worth remembering that the Latins fought in a particular way which worked well in pitched battles. Heavily armoured cavalry and infantry are effective when an enemy stand and fights you head-on. And throughout the First Crusade, those tactics triumphed because the armies of Islam kept blundering into their midst. But there's a reason the Crusader states did not last, and there's a reason that Byzantium abandoned their investment in cataphracts and heavy cavalry when those tactics no longer suited the conditions of the day. Listener SB asks what the perception of the Latins was in Constantinople. Was it positive or negative? Anno Comnini seems to reflect the mood in Byzantium nicely by slagging off the Latins repeatedly while admitting that they were impressive warriors. She repeatedly compliments the horsemanship and toughness of the Westerners while also making it clear that they were all 
greedy and treacherous. As a broad stereotype, that probably was the elite reaction. But, as we discussed earlier, hundreds of Latins served as senior officers in Byzantium across this period. So on an individual basis, there was clearly no clash between the two, but en masse, the Romans saw the Latins as threatening and uncouth. Resentments were also building elsewhere in society. In ecclesiastical circles, Latin ideas could cause a stir, while on the streets of Constantinople, the growing confidence of Italian merchants put certain noses out of joint. Generally, though, the Latins, as with most Christian foreigners, were perfectly welcome in Byzantium when there was no great cause for conflict. Listener SB also asks, did the nobility of Byzantium misjudge the Western understanding of honour? Would it have been possible to counteract Bohemond's tricks if they'd understood better what knights expected from their liege? I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear from Bohemond's whole career that he wanted a kingdom of his own and would settle for nothing less. Could he have been escorted away from Antioch towards Palestine instead? Probably. But I think wherever Roman troops were absent, a certain number of Latins were going to do whatever they wanted. Their lifestyle was one of violent acquisition. Honour was a flexible concept when it came to gaining immense wealth. On a similar note, listener D92 asked why the Pope in Rome supported the Crusaders when they took Antioch. Why didn't he recognise the necessity of keeping Byzantium friendly if Jerusalem was going to be held? My perception is that each pontiff dealt with the situation in front of him rather than having a consistent strategy when it came to Byzantium. So Gregory VII authorised Robert Giscard to attack Byzantium on a flimsy pretext, while Urban went to great lengths to help Alexius. But then his successor, Pascal II, gave Bohemond his blessing to once again invade the Balkans. This inconsistent approach was in part down to the pontiff's dual role. On the one hand, leader of a world religion, and on the other, the ruler of a small Italian city-state. The need to keep one's neighbours happy would often interfere with the desire to have timeless religious policies. In the specific case of Antioch, there were arguments on both sides, and the Latins were installing clergy loyal to Rome in these ancient seats of Christianity. As much as Constantinople was a factor in the eastern Mediterranean, it was easy to argue that the Crusaders were putting in place representatives of the true church who should remain there for the good of everyone's soul. If the Byzantines had retaken Antioch from the Latins, the papacy would have rolled with the punches and accepted the change without much complaint. Listener DT and D92 ask about provincial administration in this period. Basically, it continued to operate as it always had done. Governors controlled a central point and troops garrisoned key forts, Imperial tax collectors fanned out, updating their roles and collecting their annual harvest. Both listeners mentioned the theme system. The Romans continued to call their provinces themes, uh, 
but you should remember that theme in this context is just another word for province. The idea that the theme system produced loyal recruits who would defend their land is, by this point, a very old concept. Way back in the early 10th century, communities began offering the authorities cash instead of producing soldiers themselves. Part of the reason Alexius adopted a new model of pronoia is that the old system no longer functioned as a system of recruitment. It was considered just another tax by those that still carried the obligation. Listener D92 asks about administration in reconquered Western Anatolia. Was the same system reimposed, or had it changed at all? Essentially, the same system was resurrected, though the boundaries of the themes were adjusted to reflect new realities. The biggest change for the local population was the installation of garrisons at every available fort. For centuries, the people of Western Anatolia had lived without the need for much in the way of a military presence. A D92 asks if the population there were happy to be back in the empire. I'm sure there were some who'd enjoyed the looser attentions of the Turkic state run by Chaka at Smyrna, but in general the return of Byzantine administration would have been a good thing, particularly for those whose livelihood depended on trade with Constantinople, which would have included a lot of people. Listener G raises an interesting point. Why didn't Bulgaria simply slip out of Byzantine control during this period? Whether Listener G meant it or not, the question will be heard by many a modern ear as one of ethnic nationalism. As in, why didn't that non-Roman people, the Bulgarians, throw off the Roman yoke in the post-Manzikert chaos? The answer lies in a more nuanced understanding of the nature of the former Bulgarian Empire. Remember that the original Bulgar state was in the northeast corner of the Balkans, centred on Pliska and other sites between the Danube and the Hemus Mountains. That state was crushed by a combination of the Rus and John Zemiskis. After its fall, this kingdom was reformed in the far west of the Balkans, centred around Lake Orid in the Macedonian Mountains. Now, when a state can move its entire centre of operations 400 miles away, it suggests that the basis for its power was not found in one ethnic group. The Balkans was a diverse place. Though Slavic speakers dominated most of the region, they were not one people with one shared identity. They had things in common, but Bulgarian was not a national identity the way it is today. It was more of a political identity, like being Roman was for a lot of its citizens. The Bulgarian state was based around a leader who promised to keep the people out of the clutches of Byzantine authority. The Slavic tongue and Christian church helped provide commonalities, but Bulgarian was not yet a fixed ethnic identity. To that point, when Bulgaria is resurrected as a movement of rebellion in the 1180s, it will be ethnic Vlachs who take the lead in throwing off Roman authority. 
More good questions came from listener R.I. and J.S. They ask about Alexius's relationship with his mother Anna and his brother Isaac. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot more that I can tell you. The Alexiad places these two important figures firmly in the background. Anna compliments her grandmother as a great woman, renowned for her piety, but tells us almost nothing about her actual administration in the capital. Isaac gets even less airtime. He is present at half a dozen key moments, but beyond being a loyal and competent figure, we learn little else. Was this a deliberate attempt by Anna to downplay their role in the Komnenian revival? Probably. Given that they managed affairs at the capital for long periods while Alexius was on campaign, it seems likely that they were more important to the regime's success than the impression she gives. To be fair to her, history was generally written in the style she adopted, with war the main subject of description rather than administrative policy at the capital. She was also writing a work of propaganda to make sure her father received due credit for his achievements, to harp on about the help he received might undercut his credibility. There is, of course, no shame in needing help to run the empire, and the Roman world was usually best governed when imperial partnerships formed. Given that both the army and the honour system had just collapsed when he took power, Alexius needed all the help he could get. The division of labour at the capital, as far as we can understand it, saw Anna making most critical day-to-day -day decisions, while Isaac took charge of security. As time passed, we get hints that Alexius chafed at the extent of his mother's control, and once she retired, it seems that the emperor resumed his natural position as chief executive of all matters. Relations with Isaac seem to have been good, throughout Alexius's reign. The most contentious moment came when Isaac's son was accused of plotting to become emperor. Isaac raced to Alexius's camp in the Balkans to help smooth things over, and no harm was done. Listener J.S. comments on this highly unusual situation of having imperial brothers work so well together, particularly when you consider that Isaac was the older of the two. There are two things to bear in mind in this situation, and possibly the more important is the fact that Isaac and Alexius did not grow up as imperial princes. In the case of, say, Basil II and Constantine VIII, both were acclaimed as Vasilevs at a young age, and therefore Basil always felt wary of this ready-made replacement standing in the shadows behind him whereas Isaac and Alexius were able to develop a more traditional fraternal bond before their coup took shape. The second point, of course, is that when the moment came to seize power, Alexius was the empire's senior general, and so it was understood that it was he who would become emperor. And that may have been an issue of practicality rather than ego. After all the disasters suffered since Manzikert, it was clear that if Roman authority was going to survive, the emperor had to be at the head of the army. And it wasn't as if back at the capital it was going to be all games and banquets. There was serious work to be done to keep the government afloat. It was a situation so desperate that it forced the brothers to cooperate, 
under the watchful eye of their mother. Things were quite different for Basil and Constantine. Under the old system, an emperor could more or less run the empire without a family. The palace eunuchs could be called upon to administer the realm, the court system kept the aristocracy in check, and the tax system paid the army. The emperor could sideline all his relatives and rely on those he appointed to serve him loyally. Alexius and Isaac had to rely on each other and their wider family or see their whole world crumble around them. Finally, listener LW has two questions. First, how much can we hold Alexius accountable for the loss of Anatolia? It's an interesting question. Obviously, he wasn't in power until the whole peninsula had been lost, but can we blame him for not retaking Antioch? Or for not raising an Anatolian army to harass the Turks? Thinking laterally, can we blame him for calling the Crusades, a movement that ultimately led to the sack of Constantinople? From my vantage point, I don't think Alexius deserves much blame. He did the best he could under immense pressure. But I suppose his name does appear on the list of those who indirectly led Byzantium to collapse. But he is very much in the unintended consequences camp, rather than those whose incompetence or selfishness cost the empire dearly. Listener LW's second question is about Heraclius. Listener LW points out the similarities between Heraclius's rise to power and Alexius's. Both seized the throne in a time of civil war, with vital help from family members, and then set about trying to restore the empire from a historic low point. L.W. asks whether this says something about Byzantine history that we should take note of. And yes, I think it does. And I would direct you back to episode 200 if you'd like to muse on it further. The position of Roman emperor was almost uniquely powerful and vulnerable. Most comparable states had mechanisms for sharing power amongst the elite. Only the Romans continued to concentrate it all in the hands of one person. This is perhaps what makes Roman history so relatable, because the fortunes of the empire really do rise and fall based on the personality and capabilities of the one person at the very top. That's all for today. Thank you so much for all your questions. To sum up, I would say that the Empire was in good shape in 1118, but its room for manoeuvre had shrunk considerably. The Romans had been in a far worse position in 620 AD and 717 AD, but back then only the Sassanids and Arabs could really threaten Constantinople. In 1118, the Komnenoi faced a triple threat of Normans, Turks, and steppe tribes from beyond the Danube, none of whom were likely to overthrow the empire on their own, but in combination they presented a potentially existential threat. Throw into the mix the Crusaders, and you have a scenario where the empire is surrounded by potential foes and has to tread very carefully to avoid the pitfalls. It is this complex legacy 
that Alexius left his son John. And next time, we'll finally talk about the succession from father to son, as well as some of the sources who will guide us from Alexius's death all the way to the sack of Constantinople in 1204 AD. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.